Macron needs to be able to kind of present a vision for what the next four years are. So I argue in the past that he should have done that during the presidential election. He hasn't done it for different reasons, ranging from Ukraine to COVID, but also for tactical reasons. I thought that was a mistake. Hello and welcome to a unique episode of Uncommon Decency. Uh, today we are going to do what we're terming the Decency Deep Dive, although Jorge and Francois, if you hate that title, please let me know before we put this episode out. Um, we're going to look into a few topics that stood out to us in Q1. We're going to do a deep dive on some other stories related to last year. And then most important of all, we're going to have a debate for our Patreons on President Emmanuel Macron's visit to China. Was it a success or was it a debacle? We, we called it the devil's advocate section, where we will randomly generate someone who will be in the position of saying that Macron's visit to China was a debacle, someone who will moderate, and someone who will say Macron's visit to China was a triumph, or at least not a debacle. So we have no idea which one of us is going to defend what position. So that's very nerve-wracking, very exciting. So please do tune in for that. It should be a lot of fun and a good way for us to get the entire picture on a tricky, complicated issue. And the most nervous person about that is, of course, Francois, whose strong record of defending the French security services and French foreign policy could very well be on the line this afternoon as we record, or this evening, I suppose, for, for you two. But we'll kick off not by looking at France, unless um, your big story from Q1 is France-related. Jorge, what was one story or one theme in European politics or global affairs that stood out to you in the first part of this year as we look back? Yes. Well, you know, I think... Um I think you would have to uh, you would have to mention at some point the brewing realignment of conservative politics in Europe uh, up until this year uh, and really up until the end of last year. Um, the only two conservative readouts in Europe and by conservative, I mean sort of right wing populist nationalist politics. Um, the only two readouts of that were Poland and Hungary. And in national elections in both Sweden and Italy, we've seen two new coalition governments, both coalition governments between the hardcore right and the center right rise to power. And I think that has markedly shifted the balance of power in the EU. Now, you know, now, uh, and I guess we're going to get into some of this um, uh, when we talk about Maloney, but I think on migration politics and the way those uh, the way migration politics are playing out at the EU level, you're seeing that now you have a government that is willing to draw a red line in the sand and say, no more mass migration, no more uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, we're, we're, we're essentially uh, done with this policy of doing nothing with the mafias. And we're going to go after these human traffickers so that the people who are desperately leaving the north of Africa and Africa as a whole do not end up as illegal immigrants scatter across the European continent. So I think th one of the major stories of the past few months in Europe is the emergence of governing 
uh, right wing coalitions in Italy, in Sweden. I think they will they have changed the balance of power already and they are showing the way for other countries to move in that direction as well. And that would include Spain, where I'm sitting right now, which is heading head headed to the polls in May, at the end of May for local and, and regional races. And later that later in the same year towards December, we're also going to vote for uh, our new prime minister. Uh, so that would be my story. If, if I can bounce back, back on that, and then uh, I'll pivot to to my big story of of a year so far. What I find interesting is not so much the rise of these political parties, and you know, although as Jorge says, it's been it's it's been happening quite quite markedly in Italy and in Sweden, but also the nature of them. And I was quite struck, for example, on a pretty fundamental issue: the question of NATO, the question of Russia, following the war in Ukraine you've seen a kind of a vaccination campaign that has happened on Putinism, which was very strong in the French far right, in the Italian far right, the rest of it. Now, not so much, or at least it's much more tempered. And I remember, Jorge, when we were at the National Conservative Conference last year in Brussels, it was quite interesting to see that in real time, people were kind of rethinking through the question of where Russia stands in this European order. My big story of the year so far, and I'm going to surprise no one with this, is going to be about France. And I've been quite struck by how utterly weak the government has been um, following the election last last summer. Um, I, I expected a much tougher second term than a first term, but the administration where it seems like the entire country is being engulfed by, by chaos over strikes, uh, the lack of a parliamentary majority has kind of created a lot of tension and now it's being also manifested in the streets. Um, what I find especially worrying is a sense that we are only one year into a five-year second term, and it already feels like the sitting president is a lame duck. Um, he needs to, Macron needs to be able to kind of present a vision for what the next four years are. So I argue in the past that he should have done that during the presidential election. He hasn't done it for different reasons, ranging from... Ukraine to COVID, but also for tactical reasons, I thought that was a mistake. Now he needs to say, okay, I need to present what is, why do people want a second Macron term? What is that going to be? And I think that's going to be the story for the uh, weeks to come if Macron wants to prove that he's not named up yet. Certainly one of the more interesting topics uh, that we've seen in the first half of this year, and definitely one that we'll keep watching through the summer, I'm also going to keep. I'm picking up a threat, uh, a trend here, because I'm also going to look slightly to the conservative direction and also to my homeland, uh, because I would like to suggest, and please push back on me if you disagree, that it looks finally after almost seven years that the United Kingdom finally has a foreign policy post Brexit. Uh, we're starting to see inklings of it due to Rishi Sunak having let's say, a bit more focus than prior leaders. Uh, first, with a Windsor framework to try and bring some resolution to relations with Europe, with the continuation of AUKUS, which I know Francois loathes, um, and then also with uh, joining the formerly Trans-Pacific Partnership, but without the US, even if for minimal gain, it shows that the United Kingdom is actually starting to try and do things uh, from a foreign policy standpoint. And while that isn't always clear, uh, the tilt to Asia, as it was referred to in the strategic review, does look like it might actually have some legs and that maybe the United Kingdom, just maybe, uh, might have something of a foreign policy. So that's something that stood out to me. Okay, can I add on this? 
Um, what I also find quite striking is the sense that there is somewhat of a return to normalcy in number 10. Um, being here in London, it feels like you know the government isn't constantly engulfed in scandals. There's been a so very, very slight narrowing in the polls, which are reflecting that. And you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom for the Conservatives in London, but there's also a slimmer of hope that is starting to grow. Essentially, the idea is one advantage Keir Starmer, Labour of uh, Labour leader, had over the Conservatives is a sense that he was not completely crazy and and normal. That edge is no longer going to be here, or maybe not as much with Sunak, who has proved to be a more focused leader, as you were talking about. So, yeah, um, the foreign policy angle is interesting, but there's also, you know, generally a sense that things are going back to normal a little bit. Yeah, I think I think it's one we'll probably get into a little bit later on in the season, or perhaps later in the year, um, sort of looking at Sunak's technocratic government and how he's been able to sort of effectively move on from the chaos of the Boris years. The Boris years, I, I truly feel, you know, if there was ever a time for the thick of it to make a comeback, now is now is the time. There's so much material there. Um, we're gonna we're gonna move on to another topic that I think is quite interesting. Now, I'm obviously recording from Washington D.C. And recently, I've seen a couple of articles about Italy's Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney. And one of the first episodes that we did last season was, of course, about Italy uh, and Maloney and her party. And in particular, the accusation that she was, uh, or her party, was fascist. Um, we've now had several months of Maloney in governance, and we're starting to see articles in the opinion pages of establishment newspapers Perhaps reconsidering and apologizing. Uh, the Associated Press, I noted, is still calling her a far-right leader. Um, but Jorge, do you think that the media owes Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney an apology? So on this question, I am sort of pulled in two different directions. On one hand, I think that, as you would naturally expect, this is going to surprise no one given my views and the views of, I think, a fair amount of our listeners, um, I think the presumption that Maloney shares any sort of substantive uh, policy congruence with fascism is ludicrous. I mean, fascism is a 20th century ideology. It was a rather deathly ideology, was violent. It was na- it was a, a, a nationalistic in a way that I think uh, Maloney doesn't quite um, doesn't quite replicate. Um, it was also sort of bellicose. It was all, all, always geared towards uh, armed conflict in a way that Maloney is not. And um, so I think accusations of fascism or even accusations of being on the far right. I mean, I think she's a right wing leader for sure. She's a conservative. But uh, I think accusations that depict her as some sort of radical nut job are generally uh, to be taken with a pinch of salt. However, However, I am also pulled in another direction here, which is to say that, you know, you have also gotten on the sort of center left media ecosystem across Europe. And I'm thinking here about Le Grand Continent, for instance, which has published a lot of pieces saying Maloney is governing as a centrist. She has tacked to the center. She is moderated. She is softened. And I think actually in some of the tougher topics that she is having to deal with on her table, um, she's actually not soft, softened at all, but rather 
you know, held quite steady where she initially was on migration. She's been tough. She has been tough on sort of um, um, in, in the Council of Europe. She is uh, she has defended uh, Hungary from from the constant onslaught from the European Commission about sort of rule of law and everything uh, to do with that. So I think she is governed as um, as a pragmatic, uh, conservative um, stateswoman, uh, and I think uh, and I think that has surprised me uh, quite favorably. But François, you want to go ahead? Yeah, um, I, I was thinking about the piece that Le Grand Gautinon piece you're talking about. It's it's quite interesting. I think the idea here is the Italian establishments economic establishment and the Italian political establishment have this kind of complex stance between each other. But the more often than not, when entering power, even the kind of the rabble rousers end up moderating quite considerably. Um, you know, if you take if you take the leaders of the past few years, you had Matteo Salvini, uh, he was very much anti anti Euro and, and anti all of that. He, he he had a tumultuous stance uh, as 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 deputy prime minister, but in the end, nowadays, a lot of kind of fierce uh, rhetoric on the euro disappeared. Uh, if you take, for example, the Five Star Movement, again, kind of Eurosceptic movement, you know, very populist party. Again, you know they've been kind of co opted. So it's been interesting to see that. If anything, Maloney is you know showing a lot of continuity with what happened before her, and. I think she was also maybe a little smarter than Salvini, for example, because she has learned to pick her battles. Salvini, when he started, went all guns blazing against against Europe. Um, and it was a tricky situation with the, the, the infamous spreads between the uh, German debt and the Italian debt uh, rising considerably, putting a lot of uh, strain on what Italy could do. And in the end, the Italians end up folding and accepting a lot of uh, Brussels demands on making its budget more sane. Um, Maloney has decided to shelve a lot of those battles because she thinks it's not worth it. You know, there's a, there's a global context with a rise of inflation, which means that your, your interest rates are, are rising, which means you no longer have this capacity to handle as much debt. But it points out to a structural issue Italy has, which is Italy is often seen, you know, there's this slightly... Um, kind of Protestant view of Europe where, you know, the Northern Europeans have been very virtuous in handling their, their, their finances over the past few years. And, you know, the, 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 the lazy pigs from the south of Europe uh, have been spending without, without counting and now, and now they're crying. Um, when you look at the case of Italy, it's primary structural deficit. And sorry of using such a, a barbaric term, but essentially it's the idea that if you take away the cost of a debt, and if you take into account the economic conjecture, Italy has been in the green, I think, 18 of the past 20 years, something like that, which is more than countries like Germany. So I think what this is showing is, you know, the, the Italian malaise, Italian difficulty is a economy which isn't growing, an economy which isn't, um, you know, there, there is a kind of stagnation of its economy. Which means that you, there's only so many ways you can you can you can constrain your your, your budget to 
to you know to 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 budgetary straitjackets. But in the end, if you're not making you know a if you're not growing the economy at some point, then you're really going to struggle. I'm very glad that I'm not the person in this occasion using economic jargon in order to make a point about the economies of Southern Europe. Uh, so thank you, Francois, for for taking that one uh, for the team. It will be quite interesting to see when we think about Italy how they use the funds made available to them um, by the European Union on various projects. And I think that's really going to be a good test of the competence of the Maloney government that we've talked about, but also its economic conservatism uh, and how we can see that playing out um, for the country and indeed for her ruling her ruling party and see if they can sort of set an agenda for Europe for a while. I think it's worth reminding people that Maloney is the first Italian leader in a while to come into government by popular election rather than sort of coalition maneuvering. So a strong mandate and potentially an opportunity to lay down a, dare I say it, Thatcherite legacy for Italy. And she's still very popular. I think that's something we need to point out. She, I think she's dropped a little bit since she got elected, but she's still above 50%. And a lot of European leaders would probably kill to get those, those ratings. Her party is still quite considerably ahead of anyone else. Um, no, so things have been looking pretty stable. And um, I was saying earlier, she was picking her battles. She's not picking those battles with Brussels. She's not, not picking those battles over the help to Ukraine. She's trying to present an impeccable uh, image to the world. Um, but also domestically, she's taking those those battles on immigration, for example, as Jorge pointed out earlier in the episode. Um, she went into, she got into a bit of a clash with, with, with France earlier in the year over where where those migrant ships should go. Um, and 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 she's in, and it paid off massively. And um, so you know she knows what's popular. She knows where she can actually build some political capital. She knows where it's not really worth it. Um, again, it's showing the great flexibility of, of Italian parties to adapt to changing circumstances. Yeah, and an award winner from Uncommon Decency. And can I can I just add one final parting remark? Do not underestimate the merit of having. Uh, propelled the Brothers of Italy party from being a minor lowling party in Italy's sort of fractious political landscape to being the largest party in the country and the largest in the coalition by far, because both like, I mean, Lega has sort of, um, you know, been in, been in, in sharp decline recently and, and uh, Lega and um, not Lega or uh, Forza Italia, the center right party is also quite, uh, minor relative to Fratelli. So uh, kudos kudos to Maloney on that. Incredible rise and rise. Break, yes, she was in fact Uncommon Decency Breakthrough Leader of the Year in 2022. So if anyone ever doubts our prescience, they should consult the Christmas episode. Um, one last topic for general discussion that will be coming up in a forthcoming episode on Turkey is of course NATO. Now this is something that Francois, Jorge and myself talk about a lot just sort of on our own, um, because if you thought that all of our conversations about politics and global affairs were confined to this podcast, you would be incorrect. We talk about a lot of this stuff in our group chats and just sort of one-on-one. -on -one. And NATO expansion is one that we talk about a lot, and the future of NATO and the role of NATO, and we're probably going to look at deeper dives on NATO in the future. But of course, this year saw the admission of Finland to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization proving once and for all that John Mearsheimer's understanding of geopolitics is incorrect. Um, Francois, I'll start with you. What is your reaction to Finnish accession to NATO? And 
Do you think Sweden will get the nod in the next few months? Well, this is, as we pointed out, basically a conversation about Turkey. Um, you know, the, the, the impetus to join NATO was obviously the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And the case for joining NATO became very, very obvious for a country like Finland, which has a complicated history, of course, with Russia being part of the Russian Empire 100 years ago, having fought a very bloody war against the USSR, a victorious, well, not a victorious war, but one in which they inflicted massive casualties on the USSR. But, you know, the balance of power simply was was too, too in favor of the Soviets for Finland to consider um, a victory. So all of a sudden, that reality came back and was made quite obvious. Um, for stuff I'm doing for work, I'm tracking quite closely what is going on with you know military services, and there's been a kind of you know on top of that need for NATO, people have been bringing back the draft, bringing back some form of conscription. Um, if anything, Putin has made the continent more distant from Russia, more 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 ready to to stand up for for for, for their values. Um, now, why is it about Turkey? You had two countries which were um, considering joining NATO, Finland, which is now a member of NATO, and Sweden, which basically at the same time said we want to join, but couldn't. And Turkey basically decided to oppose it, um, mostly because of the Kurdish issue and the idea that the Swedes don't take the um, you know, the, the PKK, which is considered a terrorist group in, in, in Turkey and many countries across the world. Um, there's a sense... You know, Erdogan wants to punish Sweden for not being hardline enough. And, you know, obviously there's a domestic context. Um, there's an election happening in Turkey quite soon, which is a topic we'll be covering. And you don't want to give the impression that you're being weak on those issues. And even more importantly, perhaps, there's been these uh, Quran burnings happening on in, in Stockholm, other freedoms of speech. Um, you know, given the internationalized media landscape we have these days, Obviously, that stuff came up in, in, in Turkey, and Erdogan is always very keen to get a quick um, fake foreign policy win, which is really about domestic policy, um, by saying we won't let Sweden in because, you know, there's, there's Koran burnings happening on in Stockholm at the moment. Um, it's also really smart because by letting Finland in and not Sweden, you're not giving the impression that you are doing it at the request of Russia. You're doing this for your own own goals, your own uh, interests. And I think that's pointing out the way Turkey has been approaching the alliance increasingly, which is this constant balancing act between um, staying in, staying out, getting as much as possible. Um, given the strategic position of Turkey in the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, it's, important, it's probably important to keep the Turks in the tent for now. But there's a sense that they've become quite troublesome and hard to, to, to handle. So, you know, this is uh, on the surface a conversation about Sweden and Finland, um, but more fundamentally a question about what's going on in Turkey. I suspect that after the election, there will be some leeway for, for Erdogan to negotiate and to discuss with the Swedish authorities. Um, so something to follow. And obviously, if Erdogan is, is, is eliminated, then everything is, um, is up for grabs. Jorge, your thoughts on NATO expansion? Well, I was um, – here's a really interesting thing that I noticed. Um, I, I just want to – full disclosure, I want to um, 
to make it clear that I'm not a military expert nor a defense expert. NATO is pretty is a pretty opaque institution to me generally, even though I've been to the headquarters once and met some of the uh, officials there. But it still seems to me to be a sort of an, an opaque um, um, a, a silo. Um, the, what I realized when both Sweden and Finland were going through the, uh, the application process was that the defense parliamentary committees in every NATO member state were debating, you know, are these two countries worthy of being accepted into the alliance? Um, and that really made me think that, in fact, just like the EU, you know, the EU has a sort of a supranational dimension, which is the European Commission that sits above the member states. But the real driving force behind the EU is the intergovernmental uh, level of governance, which is where the national heads of state meet and hash out policy. And I actually realized with the uh, accession process of both Finland and Sweden that NATO is actually structured in a similar way where the states have the ultimate final say over whether a new country is accepted. And actually, um, um, uh, you know, interestingly enough, Sweden's prior to the Swedish government in, in office now, which is a center right and right wing coalition, um, prior to that, uh, the constant um, the constant um, objections by Nordic countries to the supposed rule of law backsliding in Hungary were just a constant concern, and bec- and because of that, Hungary <laughs> uh, Hungary uh, you know when it had its own turn uh, to decide whether Sweden should be accepted as a NATO member state said, you know, well, actually, Sweden has been saying some some really, really ugly things about us. Uh, let's give them, let's actually, you know, ca- uh, uh, call a hearing about this in the Hungarian parliament. Um, so again, this really made me realize that this is a very much an intergovernmental alliance. And, um, and it's one that will succeed or fail on the strength of its collective purpose. Much like the EU, this is my my way of viewing the EU as well. I think the EU is as strong as its member states are. Some yeah, some very interesting points from both of you, uh, and of course, you know, Turkey is one that we'll talk about, and people trying to sort of divine when Erdogan will give the green light on Swedish approval. Will there be a, a weapons trade? Is certainly one that we'll look for, um, especially from you know here from the American side, uh, waiting to see whether they'll give Erdogan a fop or if they're just going to wait until after the election and see if he starts to change tack. Um, although you could argue he's sort of gone a little bit too far down one path to really uh, admit Sweden without some concessions. And then similarly, in terms of the governance structure, the politics of NATO are about to get a lot more interesting with Jens Stoltenberg, who is resolute that he will not continue after this year. And we're already starting to see some some talk about who might replace him with Funnily enough, to your point, Jorge, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is considered one of the the candidates, Um, although I have a sneaking suspicion that is being put out by people who don't like her. Um, I I wonder who those people could be. I I, I have no idea, Francois. I certainly wouldn't speculate that it's Charles Michel. Um, (laughs) uh, But we'll see what happens in that dimension. The only other thing I would sort of add to this, especially when it comes to Finland, is Finland, and there's a really great article in the Financial Times 
about Finland's defense preparedness. Finland has one of the largest reserve forces in Europe and has one of the most integrated defense structures that is built specifically, un- understandably, given its history, uh, to deter a Russian invasion through the 800-mile-long border that it shares with its imperial neighbor to the east. And from a defense integration perspective, Finland is one of those countries where you know it's admitted in, it already has those defense capabilities, it already has that mindset. It's an easy integration process for, uh, for NATO to get Finland in because psychologically, they're already there. Militarily, they're already there. From a defense perspective, they already have their planning in place because they've needed to for such a long time. And then Sweden, you know, if it is admitted, um, there's an element to which you would see how would they, what sort of role would they play in NATO? And primarily you're looking at uh, naval deterrence in the Baltic. Um, Sweden has invested in submarines recently to deter Russian incursions into its um, into its proprietary sea areas and its economic exclusion zone. Um, that's been a sort of running sore for the Swedes in its relations with Moscow. But also you could see it joining these sort of rapid reforce, uh, response forces because Sweden has an island just on its south coast that is technically vulnerable to a Russian attack from Kaliningrad and could be the spark point for a broader conflict between NATO and Russia. But again, that is assuming that Sweden is admitted, which I do believe will happen um, probably by the end of the summer. But then again, we try not to make predictions on this show because then people email us saying you predicted this and it didn't happen. Although actually our listeners are very nice, so that hasn't happened. So maybe I'll get lucky. Please, please, please do insult Julian. He's always wrong. Um, he deserves all <laughs> your emails. Yeah, very much so. Um, that brings us to the most exciting portion of today's episode as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that is the moment where Fra- Francois' relationships with the French military get put on the line as he spins the wheel of fortune to see who will defend President Macron's visit to China and who will criticize it. But that discussion, I regret to inform you, is available only to our patrons. So if you are not a patron, this is your opportunity to sign up for as little as five euro, five pounds or five dollars a month, whichever is your preferred currency. And then you'll gain access to that entire conversation, uh, including other deeper dive conversations with our guests on a week-to-week basis. And as we've sort of teased throughout this episode, we do have a lot of very exciting episodes coming up on some of the most critical issues facing not just Europe, but the world as a whole. So without further ado, I bid adieu to our non-patrons and I invite Francois to spin the wheel of fortune. Oh, I can't wait to do that. That's the most important part. You're talking about obvious complicated things. The most important thing is we get to spin the wheel and that's amazing. So see you in the patron section.